Last week we concluded our study of 2 Thessalonians, one of the earliest letters written by the Apostle Paul that's been preserved in the Bible, a letter written to the church in Thessalonica just a few months after establishing it while Paul was on his second missionary journey. This morning, we begin a study of Paul's letter to Titus, one of his last letters, a letter that is one of three referred to as pastoral epistles, letters written to young pastors, namely Timothy and Titus. First Timothy and Titus were apparently written about the same time. The letter to Timothy was sent to him while ministering in Ephesus, the letter to Titus while on the island of Crete. Second Timothy is a very personal letter sent from prison shortly before Paul expected to be executed. Now, there is a problem in determining exactly when these letters were written, because references to places and events don't fit into the history of Paul's life as recorded in the book of Acts. Now, that has led some to suggest that Paul really didn't write them. A better conclusion is that they were written after the events recorded in Acts. You know, Acts concludes with Paul imprisoned in Rome, but it's evident he's not in prison when writing 1 Timothy and Titus. He speaks of leaving Timothy in Ephesus and Titus in Crete and of planning to winter in Nicopolis. Paul was therefore apparently released from prison after the close of Acts and not executed at the end of two years in Rome as many presume. And historical evidence supports this. Several of the early church fathers make reference to the fact that Paul resumed his travels after release from prison and even made a missionary journey to Spain. It would have been during this time that he wrote 1 Timothy and Titus. Historians also tell us that after three or four years of traveling, Paul was once again arrested and imprisoned in Rome, and that it was during that imprisonment he wrote 2 Timothy. Well, with that very brief background on the pastorals, let's get into Paul's letter to Titus. And we're going to read our entire text for this morning before breaking it apart for comment and application. In fact, even though we can't be sure whether it was originally written as such or not, because as we've mentioned before, the original manuscripts did not include punctuation, the first four verses have been translated as one sentence, and it's therefore appropriate that we read it as such. So Titus chapter 1 Verses 1 through 4. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago that the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior 
to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Paul is writing as a bondservant of God, one who has indentured, who has bound himself in service to God, and as an apostle of Jesus Christ, one who has been sent out with the full authority of Christ. Now, he says he's writing to Titus, his true child in a common faith, but it's obvious that he's intending this letter be received by the church at large. He wouldn't have stressed his position of authority in the church if he was simply writing a letter to a spiritual son. You know, it'd be kind of strange for you to, to write a letter to your own child and, and give your resume at the beginning of the letter. So this letter is intended for us as well as Titus. Titus was, however, a son to Paul. He was a trusted partner and a, and a fellow worker in ministry. Paul sent him to Corinth as his envoy. He was left in Crete to help organize a new church. And at the end of Paul's life, he had gone to Dalmatia to minister. I really like what one commentator said of Titus. He says, Titus was consecrated, courageous, resourceful. He knew how to handle the quarrelsome Corinthians, the mendacious Cretans, and the pugnacious Dalmatians. I don't know what that means, but it sure sounds good. <laughs> Curiously, however, in spite of that, Titus isn't mentioned in the book of Acts. Even though he played an important role in a pivotal moment recorded in Acts. In Galatians, we learn that after the first missionary journey, he accompanied Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to attend what is commonly referred to as the Council of Jerusalem, the council that was made up of apostles and elders. And they came together to resolve the controversy over whether Gentiles had to become Jews before they could become Christians. Now, Titus was a Greek convert of Paul's and therefore had not been circumcised as a child. He therefore became Exhibit A at the council. And fortunately for him and for all Gentiles, it was decided that there is no need for Gentiles to be circumcised. It's been suggested that the reason he isn't mentioned by name in Acts is that he was Luke's brother. And Luke, of course, was the author of Acts. And even though Luke was the beloved physician who accompanied Paul on many of his journeys, his name never appears in Acts either. The only way we can follow his travels is through the we passages, not little ones, but the we when he adds the word we went somewhere. In the narrative, his hesitancy to mention himself may account for no mention of his brother. But be that as it may, it was to Titus that Paul was writing the letter before us this morning. 
And in the opening sentence of the letter, we discover Paul's reason for writing. Not the occasion for writing, the reason for writing this particular letter, but Paul's reason for writing any letter as an apostle of Christ. We discover the reason Paul wrote and the reason we study what he has written is threefold. To strengthen faith, to increase godliness, and to offer hope. That was the purpose behind everything Paul wrote. And that is our objective in studying Paul's letter to Titus. We want our faith strengthened. We want godliness to increase in our life. And we want hope to be offered in a hopeless world. Paul opened his letter by noting that his purpose in being a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ was to strengthen the faith of those chosen of God. Now, Paul makes it clear that he had been entrusted with the proclamation of God's Word. And as such, he was indeed an evangelist, sharing the good news of God's plan of salvation throughout the Roman Empire. We speak of his travels as missionary journeys because he carried the gospel to new places and to new people. That's what a missionary and evangelist does. But I find it interesting that he doesn't speak of his role in leading men to Christ so much as God's role in choosing those to whom he ministers. When he said he was an apostle for the faith of those chosen of God, the implication is that he saw his job as one of strengthening the faith of those God chooses to call to himself. You know, sometimes we think the job of reaching a lost world is our job. And we discount the role God plays in calling men to himself. While we do have a role to play, we have been commissioned to make disciples, to teach and baptize as we go out into the world. We must never forget that we actually convert no one. Jesus made it very clear that it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. We share the message, but he does the converting. And if anyone accepts the offer of salvation, we can be assured that God chose to save them even before we shared the gospel with them. Now that frees us from thinking someone's response to the gospel depends on the effectiveness of our presentation. And it assures them that God loves them enough to make certain 
they would be given the opportunity to hear the gospel. Because no one can be saved apart from it. Admittedly, we don't fully understand how God chooses whom to call to himself. Scripture indicates his foreknowledge comes into play somehow, but how to reconcile the sovereignty of God with the free will of man has kept theologians busy for generations. We simply accept by faith the fact that God has chosen us because he says so in his word. And then we seek to strengthen our faith by committing ourselves to studying further what he has said in his word. In Romans 10:17, Paul wrote, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Our faith comes alive when we hear what Christ has done for us. And our faith is increased. It is strengthened as we study the revealed Word of God. As an apostle, Paul was writing the Word of God. And he was doing so to bring those chosen of God to faith in Christ and to strengthen the faith of those chosen of God. That's why he wrote this letter to Titus, and that's why we study it, to increase our faith. In addition to that, Paul wrote to increase godliness. Paul indicated he was writing to increase knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Writing so we could know the truth that leads to godliness. And indeed, it is the truth that sets us free to be godly, free to be like God, to be what God intends for us to be. Now, admittedly, sometimes the truth is hard to accept, especially the truth about God. But it's accepting and understanding the truth about God that enables us to know the truth about ourselves. Because we're made in His image. How often have you heard someone say they know God understands something they're doing even though others might not understand it or accept it? Or suggest that their God wouldn't do something they find distasteful? Suggesting their God isn't as harsh or judgmental as yours. They say these things because they do not want to believe the truth about God. They don't want to believe something about God that might call their behavior into question. Something that might reveal their behavior as ungodly. So they intentionally lie about God rather than face the truth about themselves. But make no mistake, what the Scriptures reveal about God is true. It's absolutely true. In fact, everything found in God's Word is the truth, the absolute truth. 
things. Absolute. Universal truth because it comes from the God who is over all. And unlike politicians seeking votes, God doesn't shade the truth. He doesn't tell half-truths. He doesn't hide uncomfortable aspects of the truth. He tells the truth, the whole truth, what? And nothing but the truth. God doesn't lie. In fact, he cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie because his holy nature prevents him from lying. We can therefore have absolute confidence in everything God has said. What he made manifest, what he brought to light and entrusted Paul to proclaim is absolutely true. That means everything in God's word is absolutely true. However, That's not to suggest our understanding of God's Word is always accurate. Any more than scientific analysis of things that can be observed in the physical world is always correct. It's only to say that what has been written in God's Word is true, and it was written so we can know the truth. But knowing the truth is not an end in itself. We don't study God's Word to become scholars. We study God's Word to become godly. We study God's Word to become godly. We study God's Word to know Him. To know what He expects of us and to then become like Him. That is why Paul wrote this letter to Titus. And that's why we study it. And finally, Paul wrote to offer hope. Paul wrote to offer the hope of eternal life. Not vain hope. Not unrealistic, everything's going to be okay, Pollyanna hope, but hope offered by a God who cannot lie. Hope promised long ages ago and secured for us when the time was right. Hope made sure by the life, death, and resurrection of God's own Son. That is the hope Paul offers in his writing, and that is the hope we need. Now, if this is all there is, life is vain. It's empty. It's without hope because everything we see in the physical world ends in death and decay, including ourselves. The writer of Ecclesiastes even went so far as to say it this way. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath and there's no advantage for man over beast. For all is vanity. All go to the same place. 
All came from the dust and all returned to dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth. Now, that's a disturbing passage of Scripture. And it's not one you're going to put on a plaque and stick on your fridge. Okay? It's the expression of someone who is trying to make sense of life. And at this moment, he's acknowledging there was a time when it did not make any sense at all. We were studying this on Wednesday nights. Not this Wednesday, but we'll pick it up again next Wednesday. A good study in Ecclesiastes. And while studying this passage, we discerned this is the only conclusion one can reach under the sun. That is the key to understanding Ecclesiastes. If our perspective on life is limited by what we can see under the sun in this physical world, nothing in life makes sense. And we are ultimately without hope. Outside the revelation of God, there is little evidence that men are anything but beasts and that they share the fate of beasts. But God through his prophets and apostles, has revealed that there is more to come. There is a life to be lived beyond this life eternally. And it's the promise of eternal life that gives this life meaning, that gives hope, that makes sense of life. If you are having a hard time staying positive in the face of death and discouragement, get into God's Word. Discover the truth about what lies ahead so you can get through the now. The promise of eternal life. A full and abundant life for all eternity enables us to not only endure this life, but to enjoy it. You know, a woman finds joy in labor. Now, I don't think Marilyn found it at the moment, and she told me so. But a woman still finds joy in labor knowing a baby is on the way. Right? Amen, women? Men? Oh, yeah, amen. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> and something else. We can actually enjoy hunger if we know we're losing weight. True? Sort of true. You know, if we'll keep our eyes on what lies above the sun, 
made possible by the Son, we can live with hope. No matter what we're going through. The Word of God was written to strengthen faith, to increase godliness, and to offer hope. That is why Paul wrote to Titus, and that's why we study what he's written. Bottom line, we study God's Word so we can keep our eyes on Jesus. For it's only when we keep our eyes on Jesus that we have a hope that is steadfast and sure. A hope that strengthens our faith and enables us to live godly.